When I have traveled to places like Romania, Slovakia, and Kazakhstan, countries that were at one point behind the so-called Soviet Iron Curtain, and have visited with families there who by Canadian standards are, are very poor, I have been moved by the generosity of the hospitality that has been shown to me and my team members. I remember hearing in, in some homes that folks had saved for six months so they could offer us lavish hospitality through a meal. And I remember being served coffee in these places, and at least at the time, coffee was very expensive in these, what were called Eastern Bloc countries, akin to liquid gold. And the coffee would come to me, it was already served, and so I would drink it gratefully, but as some of you know, I normally, pretty much in any other circumstance, don't drink coffee. I've never really acquired a taste for it, which is sort of unusual, being a Vancouverite. I just prefer water. But people in Eastern Europe assume that because I'm from North America, I must love coffee. Sometimes we assume that God wants something from us, and so in a manner of speaking, we prepare coffee for God. We're in a sermon series right now called Encounters with Jesus. And we're going to be looking at two people who offer Jesus different gifts. And based on Jesus' response, we're going to get a window into what Jesus prefers. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, we read these words. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. Living God, through this passage of scripture that your spirit has inspired, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts so that we would be able to understand what it is that Jesus desires from us and then give us the strength and the grace and the love to offer that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our passage, we read that Jesus and his disciples were on their way, and they came to a village. So where are Jesus and his disciples on their way from? Well, uh, they're traveling to Jerusalem for one of the last times before Jesus goes to the cross. And they're making their way east. And in order to get there, they've got to travel through Bethany. It would be like being in the Fraser Valley and coming into Vancouver and needing to travel through Burnaby. And in order to, um, to get to Jerusalem, as I mentioned, they're coming through Bethany. And when Martha, one of Jesus's close friends, hears that Jesus and his disciples are coming through their village... She, along with her 
sister Mary and their brother Lazarus, who are also good friends of Jesus, insist that they come to their home for, for dinner. And Martha wants to display, to demonstrate her love for Jesus by preparing a lavish meal for him. But apparently something goes wrong with the, the meal preparation. I don't know. We don't know exactly what it is. Um, if you've entertained fairly large groups of people for a meal, uh, you know that there is an art to making sure that everything comes out at the right time, you know, off the stove, out of the fridge, out of the oven. Everything hopefully comes out at the right time so everyone has a good time. And apparently this was not happening for Martha. And so she was frustrated. She was anxious. I remember uh, some time ago we had a fairly large group of people over to our home for dinner. And I was just in charge of the, the barbecue. And the barbecue wasn't giving off enough heat. It's normally reliable, but it turned out that the propane was, was running low. And so um, it was taking a long time to cook the beef. It was rare. It ended up being quite rare. <laughs> it was cooking chicken. That was taking even longer. You don't want to have rare chicken unless you want to have really sick guests. Uh, and that seemed to take forever, and it was delaying the meal, and I was feeling frustrated and anxious. And maybe Martha's oven wasn't generating enough heat, maybe the bread wasn't rising, maybe she just felt overwhelmed as the dinner was about to be served, but for whatever reason, she's feeling anxious, she's feeling frustrated, and her sister Mary is not helping her in the kitchen, but is in what we would call the living room area of the home, sitting at Jesus' feet, and... Martha is resentful that her sister isn't helping her. Martha is probably also mad because Mary, in sitting at Jesus' feet, is taking the literal posture of a student with her rabbi in this case, but this was a role meant really just for men in their world. And so she was, Martha was probably indignant about that. So she ends up coming out of the kitchen storming into this area of her home where Jesus is teaching his disciples. And Martha doesn't address her sister Mary directly, but instead looks at Jesus and says, don't you care that my sister has abandoned me in the kitchen? Tell her to come and help me. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is truly needed, and Mary has chosen what is better. Now, if you've heard some messages on this passage before, um, you may have heard preachers give Martha a bad rap based on their impression of her in this passage of Scripture. But I don't think Mary or, or Martha was a, a, a bad person. I think she was a wonderful person. Yeah. She was the kind of person, if you had been sick, would have made lasagna for you and brought it to your home. Uh, Martha was the kind of person who, if you wanted to organize an important birthday celebration for someone special to you, uh, she would have been the one to help you pull that off. Martha was a wonderful person. She was a generous, giving person. She was someone that you could count on. It's also important to note that 
although Jesus clearly affirms Mary in this scene, by doing that, he is not making a sweeping general statement that when you offer a contribution to Jesus through spending time with him consciously in prayer or learning from him, that your gift is better, that it's superior than if you offer some kind of gift of action on his behalf. And part of the reason we know that is because of what Jesus teaches in other parts of the gospel. So, for example, in the passage immediately preceding this one in Luke 10, Jesus tells the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in this now famous parable, Jesus describes how a Samaritan man was walking down a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he sees a Jewish man who has been beaten, robbed, and left to die. Uh, as a Samaritan man passing a, a, a Jewish man like this, um, that, that other person would have been his cultural enemy. And Jesus explains how this Samaritan helps to cleanse his wounds, uh, bind them, and then puts this, this, this beaten, assaulted man on his own donkey, takes him to a nearby inn, and pays for him to be taken care of. And Jesus praises the action of the Samaritan for being a good neighbor to this person who had been assaulted and left for dead. And so Jesus values action. And so in praising Mary here, he's not saying that prayer is more important than action insofar as a gift for Jesus or for God is concerned. He is teaching that in this particular instance, what he wanted from Mary was for her to sit at his feet and learn from him as opposed to uh, preparing an elaborate meal. And that's what he wanted from Martha as well. But we get another clue in the, in the passage as to why Martha was somewhat outside of Jesus' ideal space for her. When Martha comes into the living room area of her home from the kitchen, she is upset, as I mentioned. She turns to Jesus and says, my sister has abandoned me to the kitchen and don't you care? Tell her to help me. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. And the, the word... Yeah, she might have been uh, distracted by all kinds of calls. Uh, and uh, the word translated worried into English is the Greek word marimna. And it, it literally means being pulled apart or, or, or being torn to pieces. And so Jesus is, is saying to Martha, you are upset and you are falling apart with anxiety. And one of the ways we know that we are in a space that is outside of what Jesus ideally wants for us is that we are anxious and we may feel like we're falling apart in some way. Thomas Merton, the, the great writer on the spiritual life, in his classic book, New Seeds of Contemplation, wrote, Unnatural, frantic, anxious work, work done under pressure of, of greed or fear, is never willed directly by God. 
And so part of the way we know that we are outside of Jesus's desire for us is that we feel frantic, anxious, and, and, and hurried. The wise Canadian Catholic writer in the spiritual life, Ronald Rollheiser, says, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Pastor John Ortberg, who's also an author, says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. And I think that, that John is right, that for, for a lot of us, the, 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 the danger we're facing is not that we'll totally renounce our faith, but that we'll be so busy, so distracted, so preoccupied, that we'll just skim over our lives instead of actually living them. And part of the way that we live into Jesus' desire for us is by simplifying our lives as we can. When uh, Jesus addresses Martha directly, he says, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Now, in the context, that one thing that was really needed was for her to spend time with him as Mary was doing. But if we were to extrapolate, I think that we could also assume that Jesus would have said to Martha, insofar as the meal is concerned, it doesn't have to be elaborate. It's fine if it is simple. Now, there's nothing wrong with preparing a multi-course lavish meal for people. That can be a great gift. But based on this passage, I think we could say that if we had to choose between preparing a multi-course lavish meal that would cause us to feel frustrated, anxious, and angry, or preparing a simple meal of soup or sandwiches where we felt peace and joy, that the latter would be a better choice. Part of the way that we live into Jesus' desire for us is to seek to simplify our lives. Perhaps you've heard the expression, if, if something is worth doing, it's worth doing well. But it's also true that in some cases, that, 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 that's true, but it's also true that for some things, if something is worth doing, it's worth doing simply. I remember being in graduate school and in, in seminary, and a professor stood up, I think it was the, the first class of, of, the, of the term, and he said something like, some of you should take this class and aim for an A, and others of you should be aiming for a B, and others of you should be aiming for a C, or I think he may have said even a D. And it wasn't that he didn't value the material he was teaching, but he realized that for some of the students, um, they, the, the, they were married the, the, or, or had kids. That wasn't true of me at that stage in my life, um, but it was true for others. Uh, for, for some students, they needed to work a job to make ends meet financially, and for, for them to aim for, say, an A uh, 
would mean that they would neglect their, their marriage or their, their family, or they would just be really stressed out because they were also working a very demanding job. And, and that aiming for an A for them would be to compromise their relationship with God or someone important in their life or some um, vital part of their existence. And so he was saying, some of you should just take this course simply. Uh, Craig, earlier in the service, mentioned that we are in the season of Lent. And one of the, the, the gifts of this season is the question of how we can simplify our lives so that we create more space for God. And some people during Lent will simplify the way they eat. They might cut out dessert or alcohol. Others will cut back on social media or cut back on screen time to create more space for God. But as we noted in our Rhythms for Life series earlier this year, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be just during Lent, but any time of the year we can seek to establish a rhythm of life that is simple um, so that we have space for God, space for the most important things in our lives. Uh, So uh, throughout the year we might think about how we can simplify our relationships with our devices. Uh, In January, we talked about how we might, as part of our rule of life, establish a practice so that we won't use our devices until we've had conscious time with Jesus. Or we won't bring our devices to the dinner table so we can be more present to our food or if we live with others, more present to those in our actual lives. Earlier, I mentioned that this passage is not teaching us to pit the gift of prayer for Jesus with the the gift of some kind of action because he values both. But if we were to have to make a choice in terms of time sequence between the gift of prayer and, and spending time with Jesus consciously and action based on Jesus' own life and his teaching, I think that we could infer that ideally prayer or time with God comes first and out of that comes our action. We see in the Gospels that Jesus in the midst of a demanding life and ministry took time, especially in the mornings, to to seek God. Uh, we, we read that he went out to solitary places to find strength in God, to, 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 to draw wisdom from, from his Father. And then in the, in the passage preceding this one, as I mentioned, where Jesus offers the parable of the Good Samaritan, he, he does so because he is explaining that this is a way to live out the great commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like the first, to love your neighbor, to love our neighbor as ourself. And as my professor Haddon Robinson pointed out, my seminary professor, if you get the two reversed, if you try to love your neighbor without first loving God and receiving love from God, you might just be on the road to burnout. And so if we want to really live our lives instead of just skimming them, if we want to avoid being 
distracted into spiritual oblivion, to use Rollheiser's term. Uh, we do well to have a rhythm of life where we are receiving the life of God and out of that, engaging in action. And as we do that, as we spend time with God, perhaps in the morning or in the evening, in the ancient Hebrew perspective, the day begins at night. And out of that act for God, for others, uh, we will find that we have greater peace, greater strength, and, and greater wisdom and, and discernment. Earlier, or actually it wasn't... It wasn't um, this year, but it was uh, in December of last year during Advent. During one of my sermons, as some of you may recall if you were here, I was having trouble recalling what I was intending to say. And it wasn't that I wasn't prepared. I, I was prepared, but for some reason that was a mystery then and, and continues to be, I was having trouble recalling some of the things that I had had um, prepared for my for my message. Um, uh, I just got back from Japan within the last 48 hours, so if I'm having trouble today, I know it's from jet lag, uh, but I wasn't jet lag then. And uh, a couple of physicians in our community encouraged me to get checked out by a doctor, so I actually went to the ER, ran a series of tests. They've all come back clear, by the way, in case you were wondering. Uh, and, and last month, I had the, the final test in, in this series. I, I had an fMRI for the first time in my life. And as I was getting ready to um, go into this cigar-shaped um, you know, tube-like machine for the, the, the MRI, a couple of um, the medical assistants were asking me questions like, do you have any claustrophobic tendencies? Uh, is it stressful for you to be in a confined small space? Uh, is it difficult for you to be in silence for 15 or 20 minutes? And I said, no, I, I think those will be fine. Would you like some music? Sure. How about some classical music? And, and so the, the way that the medical assistants were preparing me um, it seemed to indicate that they were anticipating that a lot of people, myself included, would find this MRI to be a very stressful and difficult experience. But it actually went by pretty quickly, and it felt like a pretty restful and even meditative time. And afterwards, I thought about an experiment done at the University of Toronto, where they were trying to determine what a person's brain typically does when they're asked to lie down, they're not asked to do anything in particular. Does the brain naturally default to a place of rest? And what they found is they put people in these fMRI machines was that when someone lies down and they're asked to do nothing, their brain doesn't default to a place of rest, but it starts to churn in all kinds of ways that they start thinking about their past and something they regret not doing or doing, or they start thinking about something on the horizon in their future, something they're anxious about. And so the default mode for 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 people typically is not one of rest. And so the researchers at the University of Toronto decided to do a follow-up experiment where they took a fairly large group of people, divided them in half, and they had half the group enter into a course on how to meditate, and, and the other half didn't go, go through the course. And then they put the people who had gone through this course on meditation into the the um, MRI machines, and they discovered, even though they weren't told to meditate, that their brains were in a state of rest and peace. And then they put the people who didn't go through the course 
uh, into the fMRI machines and they discovered that as soon as they lay down, that their brains were just churning. The default mode was very active, that they were ruminating and, 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 and quite anxious. And when we spend time in prayer and meditation with Jesus, it may seem at some level like nothing is really happening, that this is sort of a waste of time, but something is happening. We are being transformed on a, on a spiritual and neurological level, and we will experience more peace and rest outside of that time. And so we will be more in line with Jesus' desire for us. And as we establish rhythms of life where we spend time consciously with Jesus in prayer, in receiving his word, enjoying his presence, we'll also experience more strength. In a wonderful verse at the end of Isaiah that some of you no doubt are familiar with, the prophet says, or God says through the prophet, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I've been reading uh, the memoir of, of the U2 lead singer Bono, and I was recently reading a passage where Bono describes getting to know the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa. And Bono had observed how engaged Desmond Tutu was in, in works of justice with truth and reconciliation. And so Bono sidled up to the, the Archbishop um, and said, um, with all the work you have to do, do you actually have time to pray and meditate? And Desmond Tutu shot a look at, uh, at Bono to say, are you kidding me? And, and replied, without prayer and meditation, there's no way we could do the work that we do. And Bono himself, who was a committed Christian, realized that yes, of course, it's prayer and meditation that energizes us and leads us into our life work. So prayer and meditation can lead, will lead to a greater sense of, of peace and joy in our lives, which puts us in the path of God's purposes, energizes us for our action in the world, and then also gives us more discernment and clarity. Uh, people who practice prayerful meditation um, find that they don't need to weigh pros and cons of a situation um, using as much time uh, because things become clearer to them sooner. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and as a result of that, she's able to discern what Jesus really wants from her. Uh, there is one more dinner, apparently, that Jesus has, according to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, just before he goes to the cross uh, at, at the home of Martha. Mary and Lazarus. And again, Martha is in the kitchen preparing a meal. Apparently she's at greater peace because there's no rebuke from Jesus. And Mary again is sitting at his feet. And, and partway during whatever Jesus is, is teaching or doing, um, according to John chapter 12, Mary takes some very expensive perfume worth a year's wages breaks it open, pours it over Jesus' feet. And one of Jesus' disciples, who will later betray him, says, what a waste of money. That, that perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And Jesus says, look, you'll always have the poor to serve. They'll always be around you. But what Mary did for me is a beautiful thing, and it will prepare me for my death on the cross. 
interesting to note that Jesus had been talking quite a bit about his upcoming death by crucifixion. And yet it didn't seem to sink in with his disciples. It was Mary who had this apparent practice of sitting at Jesus' feet who was able to discern that he was about to die and so that this gift of the perfume on his feet would help prepare him for his burial. And when we spend time with Jesus at his feet, not only will we experience more peace and strength, but we will be able to better discern what Jesus wants from us. I closed with a, a, a story uh, told by my professor, Haddon Robinson. I was uh, in seminary, as I mentioned, and he was my professor. And one day in chapel, he stood up and he, he told this story as part of a message that he was giving. He recounted how he himself had been a seminary student way back when. And that, that a pastor from Chicago, from a reformed church in Chicago, had come to the school and, and, and was giving a message. And in his message, he was describing a mother with her son, uh, uh, who uh, was a, a young boy. And as a young boy, uh, his, his father had died. And so they, they were, it was just the two of them. And uh, this boy eventually grew up, and when he was in his 20s, he met a young woman at the church. They fell in love, and they decided to get married. And um, this was, uh, this is an important detail, um, this was in a time before um, uh, televisions uh, were invented, and so in the evening, people would listen to the radio, or they would read to one another, or they'd listen to music. And so uh, after this, um, this young man and this woman got engaged to be married, uh, they, they were looking for housing uh, to, to live in. But housing at that time in Chicago was hard to come by. And so the mother said, look, we have a two-story home here. I can make an apartment of the, the first story, or, or of the second story, and, and you and your new bride can live uh, downstairs. There's just one thing that I'd ask of you, and that is that we would continue to spend time together because I'm going to miss um, the times listening to the radio with you, reading um, and uh, listening to music. And so the son said, Thank you, Mother. That's a very generous offer. Uh, and yes, of course, we can continue to spend time together. That is important to me. And so the son got married, and uh, they, they moved into the, what we would call a basement suite of, of his mother's home. And about twice a week, he would visit with his mom. But then he got really busy. Several weeks passed before there was any kind of visit. Uh, he would occasionally just pop up to the top of the stairs and say hello, but that was about it. Things were not what they had been. And then his mother's birthday rolled around, and, and the son went out, and he bought her a dress, and he went upstairs, and he said, Happy birthday, mother. And she opened up the package and looked at it and said, Thank you, son. It's, it's a lovely dress. And the son said, um, you don't like it. I've got a receipt. I can return it. And the mother said, no, no, no. It's, it's lovely. It's, 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 it's beautiful. And the son said, we've been together too long. I, I know what you're feeling. And I know you don't like the dress. What, what's wrong? And um, the mother led her son over to her closet, opened it up, and said, look, son, 
I've got enough dresses to last me the rest of my life. I guess I don't want yours as much as I want you. And through that story, I hear God saying to me in the midst of my busyness, simplify your life and spend time with me because I don't want yours as much as I want you. Uh, let's take a moment to pray together. God, Jesus also says to you, I don't want yours as much as I want you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants you to know the peace and the strength of his presence. And so, in light of that, how might you respond to Jesus in prayer? What might you want to say to him in light of his desire to want to spend time with you? Express whatever is on your heart to God now. And Lord Jesus, help us to come into your presence and, and, and to savor the gift of who you are and your friendship as we spend time with you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. In your name we pray. Amen.